Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Cliff. Bobo, how you doing, man? Good. No time for niceties. We got a very important guest on today whose uh, his time is in much demand, and we have a guy we met through uh, Bigfooting, but he's a UFO guy. If you remember that, they did that cheesy TV show a long time ago. He was on it for a season, and uh, but anyways, he's a big wig in the UFO world. He made what's considered the best documentary ever on the UFO phenomenon, and it's called the Phenomenon. It was twenty twenty, a uh, big hit release. And we got James Fox on the phone. Thank you for having me on. I like that intro. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're trying to pump you up a little bit, right? I'm like, I got to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to be that guy. That's rad. You know, and really, your time has come. I mean, all, all the years of spent looking into UFOs has kind of culminated in this very peculiar moment here in the United States. What do you have to say about that, man? That's, it must be nuts for you. You know, it was such a whirlwind, just leading up to the release of the film. And if I gave all the details to your audience, your, their eyes would glaze over um, or they would just slip into neutral. But suffice to say, it was a monumental effort to get it across the finishing line. And then, of course, uh, for the first time in 27 years of my documentary filmmaking, I got a theatrical release, which I was over the moon about because it's something that I've been trying to do forever. And that sort of stamp of legitimacy, I don't know, having a UFO film in theaters, that was just, it's just been a goal, a goal of mine. And of course, you know, getting it to that point and then the contracts with the theaters dry and uh, no sooner they, did they dry than COVID hit. So shut that all down. <laughs> so we had to pivot to another way of release. And I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> So I guess what I'm going to say is I was so caught up in just getting the film out into the world. Um, I started when I was 43. I finished it when I was 52. And um, that I just, I didn't really have a moment to realize what I'd actually done, what I'd actually accomplished. I didn't say we had actually accomplished. There were a number of people that were instrumental in getting this film out there. I remember my father, who, uh, bless his heart, he passed a few years ago, saying to me, you know, son, you only need to hit it once in your career. And I thought to myself, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, you only need to hit it out of the park once. And uh, just about two months ago, I said to myself, I could hear my father's voice saying that. And I thought, I think I did it, Dad. I think I hit it out of the park. Dude, your movie is, it, it set the benchmark. I mean, it, it's, I'm like, James, like a guy I can talk to on the phone, made this incredible movie. I mean, it's, I mean, 
just the magnitude of it and everything you pulled in. And it's obvious, it's obvious it's a lifetime work. Yeah. You know, it's funny because this is my fourth and a half film. And I say fourth and a half film on the topic because I had done a first film, UFOs, 50 Years of Denial, uh, back in the 90s. And I sold that to Discovery Channel. And I thought, never again. That took me about four and a half years. It was grueling work. My God. And, uh, you know, I I, I kind of did that more out of spite because when I said I was going to do it, my family was so, they were so opposed and my friends were so opposed to wasting my life pursuing something that there was a dead end road and that sort of thing. Anyway, I finished the film. It did moderately well. I sold this to Discovery Channel. It aired on the Learning Channel. um, And I never had any intentions of doing another film on the topic. But, you know, when you, you have a certain vision of how you see something unfold and sometimes it's really difficult to to meet those expectations and with each film i seem to have gotten closer to that goal that objective of creating sort of the seminal feature-length documentary film on the topic of ufos that would sort of transcend the the ufo or paranormal community and penetrate a much broader more mainstream audience and so i knew that was going to be a very challenging thing to do. And I just kept kind of falling short of that goal. I did a second film out of the blue. And I always tell people it's kind of funny. My, my, my partner, Boris Zuboff was in a, I mean, we were like four and a half, five years into it. And he was in a ball fetal position crying. I was pushing his wife was screaming at me like, you're killing my husband. Stop it. This not stop. This must stop. <laughs> I was like, but the film's not done. It's going to be better. <laughs> anyway, I ended up releasing out of the blue prematurely. I felt just because everyone was dying around me, um, you know, broke and all the rest of it. And then I revisited it out of the blue and I spent another two years on it. And then I re-released that as a director's cut, but it's got, you know, 40% new material. Yeah, I just watched, I watched your whole discography just in the last few days. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's great to see the evolution of your work. So anyway, I guess what I'm getting to is that then I did, I, then I did another film, um, out of, I Know What I Saw. So I did two versions of Out of the Blue, another film, I, I Know What I Saw. And I, and I sold it. It was five years of hell. I, it's not all hell. I don't want to sound like, you know, it's not all hell. But it, my God, does it have its challenges. And uh, I sold it to A&E, but I almost sold it to Lionsgate. And Lionsgate would have been incredible because they've got this global footprint for, for distribution and already in place. It was just so exciting. that Obviously, the money would have been great as well. But they took a pass ultimately because it lacked a strong narrative and, it, and, and there were some production quality you know, issues that they had. And I was pretty devastated. And we ended up selling it for half a million to A&E. And, you know, everyone was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited for you. It's amazing. And I was just like, to be honest with you, I was just disappointed. You know, I just thought, God, I tried again, and I waited for another five years, and I still didn't do it, <laughs> you know, because I just, it wasn't the film I wanted to be. And this film, The Phenomenon, even though I haven't watched it since I completed it a year ago or whatever, eight months ago, it's, 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 it's there. I, I looked at it, and I said, okay, finally, I did it. This is, this is what I... This is what I wanted to create. Now, James, I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch this thing yet. I've been slammed with other distractions in Bigfoot land. Um, so when I do sit down and watch it, just like our, our listeners are going to do, um, what what am I going to check out? Like, you don't have to give away the, you, no spoilers or anything like that. But what, what do I have uh, to look forward to? So this is the first film that I did on the topic of UFOs that I included some incredibly compelling accounts 
of close encounters of the third kind, and that is when witnesses report beings, creatures associated with the craft. And I knew that was a very slippery slope, particularly that I was working with some pretty high-level military government and and scientists. I was terrified they were going to run for the hills as soon as they found out I was dealing with a case of an alleged landing in Africa where the beings got out and interacted in broad daylight telepathically with you know, uh, a number of school children. There were about a hundred witnesses in the field at the time. Um, so I knew that was kind of my ultimate objective was to introduce that case. But I knew because I didn't believe that that happened when I was in the middle of doing a film on the topic of UFOs several films ago, I'd heard about it and I didn't look into it because I was like, that's nonsense. There's no way uh, a landing of that magnitude could take place in broad daylight with that sheer volume of eyewitness testimony and the whole world not know about it. It's just impossible. So I didn't even look into it. So I knew what I was up against with mainstream because I didn't believe it when I heard about it. So think of the first half of the film to set up the level of credibility and the likelihood of an event like that taking place for the second half of the film. Do you, do you know what I mean? So you kind of have to eat your spinach and prepare because most we we managed to penetrate a much broader, more mainstream audience, and that was that was um, you know mission accomplished, and, and and we continue to do that. I mean, I don't know the film was was number three worldwide yesterday. I don't know what it is today, but it's it's been in the top five since it came out. It was number one again two weeks ago. I mean, somebody talked about it on Joe Rogan's show, um, and it just continues to perform incredibly well, and and so that speaks volumes as to what my um, my uh, intentions were with, um, uh, you know, like I said, just introducing the topic to mainstream. And what a delicate procedure it was for me to introduce close encounters of the third kind in with, um, in, in, the, in the film. Yeah, and you know, for our, our, our listeners out there, um, I just want to point out that um, when Bobo told me he was going to get James on the the podcast, he goes, "Remember that dude? We 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 went out with a, we 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 met him on Finding Bigfoot, one of those episodes." And I remembered meeting you. I don't I don't remember where in the country we were, but I remembered meeting you. And I remember one of the conversations we had about how aggravating and frustrating it is for people like you and I and Bobo who are doing our best to put the subject out there in an honest, truthful light, but yet getting pushback from, you know, uh, shady producers, shall we say, and how they want us to um, exaggerate the drama. And and some people are just downright willing to lie and fake stuff. And and we were uh, kind of lamenting to one another about how difficult it is for people like us to be involved in television and whatnot in that sort of way. So um, when I heard that uh, you were going to be on the show, I was thrilled because we don't we don't invite any BSers on the show as far as, as far as we're concerned. And I know that if you're making a product like like your like your documentaries, everything in there is going to be the truth as you see it. Um, and I'm just thrilled to have people like you out there representing weird unknown phenomenon like you do because there's so much just BS on television. And, and, and frankly, whether it's UFOs or Bigfoot or whatever weird stuff somebody's into, if they're real, the subject deserves better. And so thank you very much for what you do. Oh, thank you. You know, it's a really interesting point, actually, because I was, I felt like I got unshackled uh, for this film. I mean, I was operating independently prior. And of course, the one time or the couple of times that I 
didn't operate independently. I ended up with the tabloid TV show and, uh, and I had no one to blame, but myself for that. Um, and, uh, but I had, so I had, I had some making up to do, <laughs> I had to like make up for some lost ground and credibility with, with, with like, the phenomenon. But when they say it had the shackles removed, I suddenly, and I won't, again, I won't bore your audience with the details of it, but I eventually landed some significant funding. And I say significant funding for me, for an independent guy, it was significant. Uh, it's probably average funding for a big production. Um, but anyway, and I got to do it the way I wanted to do it. Like for the opening scene of the movie, we actually rented a B-25 World War II bomber for that scene. It was like the most expensive shoot of my life. But my God, like it, I wanted the the audience, I wanted the excitement of putting the audience in the cockpit of this plane during this most dramatic UFO encounter I'd ever heard that took place in 1955 over Alabama uh, with, with this guy, Colonel William T. Coleman, who was an Air Force colonel and, and a World War II pilot, and later became a uh, public spokesman for Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force investigatory arm uh, for UFOs. So his sighting was really compelling, really dramatic, but also very significant because he ended up being a public spokesman for the Air Force investigations of UFOs back in the 60s. and, and I, Yeah, 60s, yeah. So, um, yeah, but it was great. And then, and then for the film to do as well as it's doing, I'm like, I told you, idiots, I told you, let me do it my way. <laughs> right there, that's the story of Finding Bigfoot. It's like, my God, producers, let us do what we do, and you're going to have a good show, and it worked. So, yeah, but the production company, though, I mean, any production company, and this is all Hollywood people. My, my, my sights are on you right now. You don't know better than the experts. You just don't, you know? So let go of the reins. I would literally tell them, you guys have to understand, there's nothing more extraordinary than a UFO landing, an alleged UFO landing, and the occupants getting out, or these cases, right? If you can add credibility to that fantastic, far-out, in otherworldly story, excuse the pun, but uh, then you've got a hit. Because it, you don't need to spice that up. You just need to give it credibility. You need your audience to believe that it actually happened, and then you've won. And that's exactly what. You know, not like we're trying to convert the masses or get people to do our, our cult of believers. It's just like, hey, man, there are extremely credible reports of encounters with Bigfoot, some that I've heard. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And there are also some really credible reports on UFO encounters, things that you normally wouldn't believe. You just have to exp expose that and report on that. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. When you uh, brought those African kids back to that uh, setting at the school, that was so, uh, I mean, I got about 700 other people to watch this movie in the last week and they're all blown away. And they, everyone, every, I mean, the whole movie blew them away, but everyone was really compelled by the, especially the African kids and the Australian school kids. That was, that was amazing. That was so, so key. Well, I didn't believe either one of those stories because you just go, 
Wait a minute. Like, how could a UFO land at a school in broad daylight and the whole world nuts? No way. You know what I mean? Like, no way. But then you go there and you listen to the eyewitness testimony and then the teachers and the guy that took a photograph. It's like, oh, my God, this happened. This happened. So there's a photograph. There's physical evidence beyond the eyewitness testimony. Yes, there was a, a, a case. A lot of times, you know, when you have a land, particularly when you have a landing, but when you have you'll have UFO activity in an area, it'll be over a several day period. And it was the same with Rua in Africa in 1994. The UFO was seen in and around uh, that region um, for several days. It was reported on by the news. It was seen by adults, and it landed. Same with the uh, UFO in Australia, which was outside Melbourne at a school, primary school at Westall. That was 1966. And that uh, UFO was photographed, or one just like it was photographed two days earlier, 12 kilometers away by a guy named James Kibble. What's your theory, or if you talk to like physicists and stuff about how they describe exactly what we've seen, the Tic Tac videos, the uh, Fravor Navy pilot uh, thermal videos? What is, what is that with like the rotating and like turning like on its side and then, then, then going? What, what's the thought on that? Yeah, a very interesting point. You know, I, I remember hearing that from the children uh, in, in Australia. And, and very rarely do you get the opportunity, and I've only had it a handful of times, and I mean a handful of times, probably one hand or less, where you get a witness that comes within 10, 12 feet of a, of a UFO on the ground. I mean, it's just rare. Uh, an incredible witness, and a, and a witness in broad daylight. Um, and that... That happened in Australia, that happened in Africa, and that happened um, with, the, with this gentleman who took a photograph of it in, in, in Australia, about 12 kilometers away from Westall Primary School. That's an amazing photo. Yeah, and they, and they and, well, at first I heard from the children, and they all said right before it took off, it turned up on its side, and then it shot off at a rocket, like, just like it shot out of a barrel of a gun. I thought, well, that was interesting. And uh, then I heard the account after account after account of that. I kind of heard some other people had talked about it a while ago, but no one that close. And then when I spoke with the gentleman who actually took a photograph of it and I had to track him down, he did not want to come forward. He'd never come forward. He'd never gone on camera. He'd never shared his photograph publicly like he did with us in this movie for the first time. And it's a, there's a backstory on how that all happened. And again, I won't, we'll be here all day if I went into that, but he did say that right before it took off, it turned up on its side, just like the children had said. And he actually captured it on its side right before it, it rocketed away. So, yeah, it's something to do with the propulsion, but I don't know. Oh, there's no th – you haven't talked to any physicists that said, I think this or like – I kind of have, but, you know, I really wouldn't do them justice. In fact, one of the, the things I'm working on right now, uh, and I haven't actually spoken to pretty much anyone about this, and I'll give your audience just a little tease, but I'm putting together a, um, a sequel to uh, The Phenomenon. Um, I've assembled a pretty, pretty, pretty uh, um, great team. And one of the things that we want to kind of explore are origins and intent and the technology. And there are a handful of physicists that we, uh, we feel could shed some light on how we believe this technology works. Do you believe Bob Lazar and his stories about trying those, those crafts captured? Wait, what is that? Wait, wait, first, what is that, first of all? So Bob Lazar was really popular back in the 90s. 
uh, late 80s, early 90s. George Knapp actually catapulted him into the limelight. Um, he claimed to have worked at a secret facility at S4, which is the in the area of, of, of Area 51. And he claimed that uh, the U.S. government had in its possession a number of disks, disk-shaped objects. He talked a little bit about the technology. He didn't understand it, but he apparently he saw it. So this is, and he was also had some access to some things that he'd learned. And I'm not saying it's true or I'm not saying it's not true. I don't know. Um, I met him back in the 90s and I thanked him for coming forward. And he said to me, I said, I said, uh, thank you, you know, Bob, for, for coming forward. And it was at a conference and he quickly kind of just, he shook my hand and he said, well, I really didn't have a choice. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that was okay. But I looked him in the eye and I thought, this guy believes what he's saying. Now, whether or not he was used as possibly a disinformation thing or maybe given some truth and some not truths, that's, that's a possibility. But I believe that he believes what he's saying. Okay, yeah, Cliff, he's really popular. He's like the most popular guest ever on Joe Rogan, stuff like that. If somebody's popular, that's a guarantee that I will have never heard of them. And I'm assuming that uh, probably a, some portion of our audience wouldn't know either. So forgive my ignorance, but I, I represent the ignorance of our audience as well in this field because a lot of us are just Bigfooters. And, you know, we, I, I love UFO stuff. I've seen a couple myself, but I'm just not, I don't spend much time looking into it because Bigfoot takes up all my life. You know, I was, um, I have my cousin Ian who's actually here with me right now in Vermont. He drove across the country in my moving truck and uh, he's been, just been a wonderful help. And we're brothers, basically. I mean, we're, we're the same age. We are, our fathers are brothers. Um, we're both from England originally. And uh, Ian li lived up in um, uh, Westport and just north of him is the Lost Coast in California. He owned, owned some property up there. And uh, he was with his kids probably maybe about 10 years ago and it was dusk. And he was driving up, I say again, at the Lost Coast on Highway 1. And this massive uh, bear on its rear, on its back legs, runs across the road faster than anything he'd ever seen in his life. He, he said, I didn't even have time to hit the brakes. He said, this bear was like running on its hind legs. And the people in town go, because he told them what happened, he goes, no, bears don't run on their hind legs. He's all, well, this one did. They're all, dude, you saw Bigfoot. <laughs> Ian said he got so close to it he could see the muscles through the of the of the arms. Like he said, it was just like muscular. But he said it was like a ninja. It was moving so fast. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a fair number of reports of Bigfoots being associated with UFOs, and I don't put any stock in that beyond, like, you know, if UFOs are looking at us or you know abducting, you know, doing cow things or whatever, certainly they're looking at Sasquatches too. Um, have you run across stories like that in your research of UFOs being directly related to uh, Bigfoot? No, only one account of a crash in 1945 near Trinity Site, New Mexico. I was interviewing a gentleman, a witness, who was, I think, 11 at the time, and he was telling me about this UFO crash. near. It was just after they detonated the first atomic bomb at Trinity Site, New Mexico. And he said, oh, and by the way, you see this fence right here? And I said, yeah. And all of his farm had not changed at all. It was exactly as it was when he was a boy. He said, this fence, and I looked at it, it was about a little higher than chest high, probably up to my neck, and I'm about six feet tall. And he said, uh, there was a Bigfoot running parallel to the fence. This is what he, just a side note. He's like, oh, yeah, this Bigfoot 
was running parallel to this fence. And he, when he went over the fence, he did a stride, like a seamless stride, where he just went one leg over and then the other leg over, never slowed down all the time while he was running parallel to this fence. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting story. The way he just, he was like, oh, by the way, I was like, I saw this Bigfoot and it was running this way. And I saw the actual fence and it jumped over. And I thought, well, that's an impressive feat, <laughs> you know? I think Stan Gordon does a lot of that UFO Bigfoot connection stuff up in Pennsylvania. So I, I have none other than that one story. Yeah, none. James, what about the um, that military official high up that said, there's hangers full of crash debris at Wright Patterson. I mean, how many big I mean, how many UFO crash reports do you think are real that they recovered actual things? That's a really touchy uh, subject. And I was uh, I was working with a guy named Jacques Vallée, who's considered the intellectual heavyweight in the world on the topic of UFOs, certainly in the in the scientific community. He worked with Dr. Jalen Hynek, he was a protege to Dr. Hynek who investigated UFOs as a scientific consultant in an official capacity for the Air Force for 22 years. So Jacques is like the go-to guy. And Jacques was really uh, concerned about us addressing UFO crash cases in the film. And Jacques would sit at the back of the edit room, and I have a tremendous respect for Jacques. Not to say that he didn't believe this had happened, but he, was, he knew what we were up against. You know, people could just say, high-level government officials just pull me out of the movie. You know what I mean? But he would sit in the back of the room and he would say, just the facts, ma'am. So just the facts, ma'am. No speculation. Who was there? What did they see? And so we covered Roswell. And I covered Roswell in a way, um, and I'm saying Roswell because it's the most infamous UFO crash when the government and the military actually announced that they had recovered one of these things. Um, and then, of course, retracted it, said it was something else. But most people that had, had done it, uh, posed with the fake debris and stuff had gone on the record before they died and said that was that was the cover story. It's not what it was. It was it was not of this world. Um, so again, I I was I, I covered that case. I covered the landing cases, and then I covered close encounters of the third kind cases. And not one intelligence person, not one politician, and I got a lot of well, fairly good amount of household names. Not only did they not ask to be pulled out of the film, but they were willing to endorse it publicly, which has never happened before. So it was like a, you know, it's just, it was really big. I, I, sorry, I went off tangent a little bit, but, I, but we did cover a UFO crash debris case. It was just Roswell. But we went to great lengths to uncover never-before-seen archival footage, uh, you know, I get comments sometimes and I try not to engage in the comments because it frustrates me. You have no idea what I went through to find the archival material. Like anyone who knows, including Richard Dolan and Jacques Vallée, Lee Spiegel, and a handful of others are like, where did you find this archive material? We have never seen this. Lee Spiegel had put on the United Nations event back in 1978 with Dr. Hynek and Jacques Vallée and, and Colonel Coyne. Uh, and it was the only like push or effort to uh, create a, a public investigation international organization through the United Nations that's ever happened. And not one second of video was ever known to exist on that. And we got that. We got and we got tons more in this film. So it kind of frustrates me a little bit when people say, oh, save all. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I can't change the history, but no, it's not. <laughs> you have never seen this historical footage before. I don't care what you say. 
it's so apparent how much effort you guys put into this. I mean, I, I was the whole time I watched something like James made this, like this took years and eight years. And I mean, but just and all the other people involved and how much research, I mean, you can tell what you had to go through to get that. It's just, it's mind blowing. Oh, and follow up on Roswell. Did you ever talk to anyone really credible, like high up that saw the bodies? Yeah, well, I did. Uh, you know, people attack, anyone gets attacked that comes out and says some pretty dramatic things. Um, there are two gentlemen that I spoke with directly. One of them was Colonel, uh, he wrote a book called The Day After Roswell. It was Colonel Corso. And I met him in 1997 at the 50th anniversary of Roswell event. And he told me that he had seen some bodies that were stored in a hangar. And he described them, the quintessential big heads, spindly bodies, big eyes, that sort of thing. Uh, they were deceased. That was one account. The other account was, um, let me think of that gentleman's name. Give me a second here, guys. Uh, it was Colonel Corso and... Um, let, let, it, let it come to me. I, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. But to answer your question, I've talked to two uh, military officials that I believed that seemed to be truthful on telling me that, um, that beings were, were involved or recovered. Um, there's a case that I'm going to Brazil. There was a, uh, an announcement that went out. Uh, probably about two weeks ago, there's an article in Vanity about um, this new film that I just announced. And it's about a UFO crash that took place in Virginia, Brazil in 1996. And there were bodies there as well. Um, oh, I know I was going to tell you. There's a guy named um, Chase Brandon. He was CIA. And I spoke with him and he said that he found a uh, I can't remember if he, if he said it was a if it was an envelope or if it was a box. I think he said it was a box. Chase Brandon found a box in the Pentagon that had all the confirmation he needed that Roswell had happened, including photographs. And I spoke with him briefly. In fact, we went on Larry King, uh, Larry King Now together. He did it remotely, and then I was going to hook up with him in Washington D.C. and have a beer, and he was going to talk to me more more depth, and then he just. Just like, I don't know, man, if the guy got a phone call or what, but he just like stopped talking. Because yeah, certainly the UFOs, if, I mean, I think they're real, of course, um, but uh, there's something else behind it. There's some sort of um, being or, you know, species or something going like, behind all this, which is now with all the UFO flap and the release report and all that stuff in the last couple of weeks, um, with all that going on, one of the most aggravating things I've heard from government officials is that there's no evidence that th these are um, that the, what what the, these pilots are seeing are extraterrestrial in origin, and I'm thinking, y y apparently you don't know what the word evidence means. I, I understand there's no proof, but there's certainly evidence if we're looking at things that you know can't be done by humans, as far as we know. So it makes sense that you know if they're if they're being piloted, there's got to be some bad pilots or mistakes every once in a while, and certainly we probably have some sort of evidence of that. Um, maybe not directly associated with the most recently re released report, but in the past. So I love that you're bringing up other examples besides Roswell of actually seeing a species behind it all. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. The Zamora one, that, that case in uh, 
you got some good physical evidence on that. There were so many other elements, aspects of that story that didn't make it in the movie that I'm actually tempted on doing a one-hour special on that case alone. I did interviews with people that had boots on the ground immediately. I did interviews with the, child, with the children of the first military officer who arrived on the scene from White Sands. I did interviews with one of his co-workers. He's since passed. I interviewed his wife. She has since passed uh, about uh, that Lonnie himself had had uh, metal scrapings from the landing gear um, from that case. That, that, is, that is a really solid case, the 1964. It's the first extremely well-documented, incredibly compelling uh, close encounter of the third kind, again, witness reporting beans in U.S. history. And I stuck my teeth into that case over about a five-year period. I mean, I was going back and forth to, to Socorro, getting to know his co-workers, getting to know the local sheriff that had since retired, uh, his family, um, and the town and, and, and National Archives. And uh, Ray Stanford, who wrote the book Pentagon Pantry, and uh, Socorro Saucer and Pentagon Pantry, went to his house on the East Coast, really, really sunk my teeth into that case. And then, of course, only about 10 minutes made it in the movie, but I, I had... The symbol, I, we've, we uncovered the, what the real symbol looked like in Dr. Hynek's own handwriting. Um, the metals that were found from the scrapings of the landing gear. I have the rocks. I took photographs of the very rocks that the metal landing gear scraped against, like all that stuff. And what happened to the metal shavings, how they disappeared, like crazy. And none of it made it in the movie just because, ah, uh, you know, you only have so much time. What doesn't make sense to me is I've seen UFOs and I had one actually fly right over my head, like a couple hundred feet above me. And the case of that one, like the you know the, the like it sounded like an internal combustion engine, you know, like fire coming out of it and extreme heat. That doesn't match with what we see now. Well, yes and no. So the interesting thing about the Socorro case is that I was investigating that case to cover in my film. Well, he described it as an egg. Well, did they have Tic Tacs in 1964? I don't know, but an egg. It's a white egg. It's very similar to the Tic Tac. Now, it did have a weird blue flame, okay, that was unlike any kind of rocket propulsion where it would ricochet off the ground and create dust and, and rocks. This was a blue flame that went through the ground like a knife through warm butter. It just penetrated the ground, right? It didn't stir up dust and everything. It did make a noise. But then when it got to 20 feet off the ground, the egg went completely silent and you could hear a pin drop. So that technology you could hear a pin drop once that blue flame thing went away. Are there like broad categories um, from your research and your data that uh, maybe the majority of UFOs um, can fit into? Um, like, like the Tic Tac egg sort of shape would be a category. Are, are there other categories that you commonly come up against? Or is it like an, because we're, we live in an infinite universe, there are infinite categories and you can't even start? Well, you know, you got the, the classic discs, and you, you've got different shaped discs. Sometimes UFOs can morph. It's almost like they're in between dimensions. Um, the one uh, significant and, and, and uh, always observable characteristic of a UFO is the flight pattern. They have the ability to hover, to accelerate from a standstill to out of sight in the blink of an eye, right angle turns at high speeds, um, they don't have any controlled surfaces, no wings, no tail, no visible means of propulsion, no exhaust vents. Uh, 
basically no noise. Sometimes people will hear a slight humming or buzzing, but basically quiet. Um, and they fly rings around our fastest jets, and they have been doing so for – I mean, it's like you hear Fravor talking about you know, David Fravor, the Tic Tac incident, 2004 off the coast of San Diego, and you compare it to – you know, Colonel William Coleman in a B-25 bomber in 1955 over Alabama. That's why I, 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 I bookend those cases in the film. I start off with the encounter. You listen to the similarities and description of the technology, the observed technology and the flight characteristics. It's exactly the same 75 years later. It's like, you know, 50 years, 70, 80 years later, whatever it is. Um, so that's the one consistency. And there are different shapes. Some, some describe as cigar-shaped, sphere-shaped, disc-shaped, triangle-shaped. The triangles kind of appeared, I think, more in the 70s, um, Hudson Valley, and you've got uh, stuff that happened in, um, in in Belgium in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, like the Phoenix Lights were one of those, too. Phoenix Lights. I interviewed the, the governor of Arizona that, who saw that. That, that was, that's a great case. A lot of people were out under the night sky. My, my wife loves it. She's all about the Phoenix Lights. So. Yeah, it's a great case. I interviewed the, the governor about that. I was so mad when I first saw him come out when he did that thing with the alien come out in a costume. And I was like, that son of a... But he, he made up for it, that's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, actually, because I was I was livid, too. I, I was not happy about that because I was investigating the case when that went down. For my first film, I had, did I put that in... My first one of that coming out of the blue. Sorry, I'm thinking aloud here. But, uh, oh, yeah, I was livid. And when I went to meet with Governor Fife Simonton in 2006... I called one of his former uh, constituents and witness to the event, this woman, Stacy Rhodes. She had a dramatic encounter with her daughter with that massive tri- – I mean, she said it was like, like a floating city, basically. And uh, they, she literally pulled her car over. I mean, they, she said her cars pulled over on I Interstate 10 between Tucson and Phoenix. They were just like gobsmacked with their mouths dropped and their eyes up in the sky as this thing floated slowly over the freeway. It was massive. She's like, I could have opened up a newspaper above me and I could have, I couldn't have blocked this thing out. It was so big. But the, but uh, so I called her and I said, you're not going to believe who I'm meeting with. She goes, who? I said, Governor Five Simon. And she's like, you're kidding me. I said, no. I said, is there anything you'd like to say? She's like, you're damn right. I would like to say something. So I took out my pocket tape recorder and recorded a statement and before she laid into him. And, and, I, and I, I whipped that out about three quarters of the way through the interview because I was, I was fearful that Fife might get up and terminate the interview because it was that bad. But I honestly think that's what caused him to come clean is when I played that for him. I don't think he realized like how upset he made his – how upset people were that he ridiculed that and made fun of that. Dude, I was furious, man, when I saw that. But hey, you know, back up real quick because um, – you know, the the recovered metals they got out of Roswell were supposed to be like feather light, but super strong. When they, they had those impressions, it's a moral landing site. And they actually they, they penetrated the ground where the landing craft, you know, like where the, the gears touched down. Uh, did they ever do a soil compression analysis to see what kind of weight it would take to make that depth? of? It was thousands of pounds. Thousands of pounds. I know that much. It compressed the sand and the soil. I've been to the landing site. What's crazy about it is that they put rocks around the impressions from the landing gear back at night, like minutes, minutes after this thing took off, right? And those rocks are still there to this day. I saw. I was wondering. I thought. I thought tourists would have to have picked them all up, and you guys just put the rocks there when you came to film. No, kind of no, no. That was their. Ex- and nobody knows. 
No, most people don't know where that landing site is. They've got a memorial to the to the case in the town of Socorro, but it's not where the landing, the real landing site is not there. They don't want people trampling on it. Yeah, it might be best to keep that one secret. So, gentlemen, i got to leave in about five minutes. Hopefully that's okay. Well, we're just thankful for whatever time you can give us, honestly. Oh, no, no problem. You guys are the only people I've said yes to, by the way. Oh, how sweet. Because of Bobo. If we only have a few more minutes left, why don't you tell us what we could, what, what you have in store for us in the near or distant future? Your plans, what you're starting to work on, and other things we can do to uh, support you. Oh, thank you. So well, I was going to say, like, if anybody and people always say, why didn't you tell me this earlier? Like, well, because you didn't ask, I didn't think. But if people want to watch the film, they could rent it and look at look for it anywhere. You get it for a couple dollars if you rent it. Probably Amazon. Amazon would be the cheapest. But if you buy it, there's three hours of bonus material that's really cool that come with it for no extra cost. But it's only available on iTunes or Vimeo. And people were like, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, I don't know. I provided three hours of bonus material for people that bought it as an incentive for people to buy it. But it turns out the only two platforms that actually offered it was Vimeo and iTunes. So if you want to buy it, if you want to rent it, just rent it at the cheapest place you can get it. And I think that's Amazon for a couple of bucks. But if you buy it, make sure you get it from iTunes or Vimeo. I rented it and then I, I wanted to watch it again. And I wanted my girlfriend to watch it. So I bought it on Amazon. See, they don't tell you that. I know I'm sorry. Oh, no, but I mean, uh, if you can get it on Vimeo, people, it's such a great, if you see that movie, you're definitely going to want to see whatever, because it, there's so many unanswered questions it opens up. I mean, there's answers, there's questions answered, but there's way more questions opened up. So I'm sure you address those in the bonus feature. Yeah, I do a lot of stuff. iTunes and Vimeo are the place where uh, our listeners want to go buy this thing. For yeah, sure. if you want to, if you buy it, get it from there, because for no extra fee, you get three hours of bonus material. And it's kind of unfair because... You know, they should be pushing that more, but Amazon kind of undercuts. I know they, I don't know how, how Amazon operates, but they, they seem to sell things even cheaper than what they're paying me sometimes. I'm like, what the hell? But, but yeah, they don't, they don't offer bonus material. And it's like, duh, if you're going to pay $12.99, you should get your bonus material. Like, duh. Yeah, you know, what we, what we can do is we can utilize our uh, social media platforms and put a link to one of those two or maybe both of them for you. So uh, our listeners yeah, can thank have you. Well, you can also read about it and watch the trailer at phenomenon, thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com. And you're going <laughs> to have to make sure you spell phenomenon right. I think it's taking me like a year. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. T-H-E-N-O-M-O-N. Okay, okay, got it. We, we promise to let you go in 45 minutes and we're at that point and we just thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us little guys gentlemen i've got i've got uh, the phenomenon two that i'm working on we're going to be answering a lot of those questions that arise in in the phenomenon the first version i'm working my tailbone off i'm also committed to going to south america brazil to investigate an alleged crash that took place in 1996 in virginia there's new, more news that's going to be coming out about that I have a delivery date of the end of February, so I'm just a pedal to the metal. Well, we'll have you back on when the second one is out, and hopefully uh, we help help you a little bit, get some more words out to people who might be interested um, in checking out the films. Well, I really, really appreciate you guys having me on, and Bobo, especially you. I, I got a soft spot in my heart for you, buddy, and I appreciate you inviting me on your show. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that, and I feel the same, James. So, yeah, good luck in all your endeavors, and thanks again. Stay in touch and let me know when the share the show goes live so I can share it. Okay, we will. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye, James. Thank you.
Did you hear that, Cliff? We got an exclusive. Oh, fantastic, man. What a great guest. You know, uh, I, I'd only known James for that one time we had a beer together and God knows where that was. Um, but man, what an articulate, smart, honest guy, you know, and like fantastic. He is so knowledgeable. Yeah, he is. I mean, I remember when I met him, you know, I was like, oh, you know, he's our age. He, he was, you know, a surfer guy from Northern California. We, that's how we kind of bonded was we had mutual, we had a lot of mutual friends through the surf scene. And, uh, we, we kept in touch a little bit, but I haven't talked to him in years. Then I saw him pop up on TV. Um, I forget what it was. It was. He was like on CNN or something. I'm like, no way, there's James. And I thought, shot. Then I looked him up on, you know, like what he's been doing lately. And I was like, oh my God, he has another one movie in the world. You know, and I'm like. Yeah, he's like the guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's the guy. He put the best movie out ever on. I mean, you got Senator Harry Reid to talk. You got John Podesta. I mean, you got these, you know, former NSA directors and chiefs of staff and it's just an incredible movie and then i'm like i'll just hit him up out of the blue like you know i just uh sent a message to his you know like one of his assistants got on some social media platform and like 45 minutes later i get this you know text from him hey man great to hear from you let's let's get together and i was like and i was like look at his you know all the stuff he has. he's on every international tv you know major news network and i was like this, this isn't going to happen. And then we got him. I was just like, Oh my gosh, we were, I was so, cause watching the movie cliff, when you watch it, you're going to, you're going to kick yourself for not watching it before you talk to him because it's going to blow your mind. Well, I don't think I would have had time to ask him questions anyway. 45 minutes may not be long enough for this guest. No, I'm going to try to sweet talk him back on. Look, you know, Melissa, my wife is totally into UFOs. So um, I will watch this movie. Um, now I know I'm gonna where I'm going to watch it, either iTunes or Vimeo. And um, we're going to have a date night, break open a bottle of wine and trip out on UFO stuff for a couple hours. This is going to be awesome. Just the three of us. Don't Yeah, just the three of us. <laughs> yep, right. Like like a couple of other anniversaries we've had. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm, 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 dude, I'm like, I'm, I'm bouncing up and down right now. Just, I'm just, I'm just so ecstatic over that interview. I was like, man, like that was so cool to hear James talk, you know, and a little behind the scenes stuff and just get his thoughts on it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that, that, this is part of the pleasure of doing a Bigfoot and beyond podcast where we can talk about other stuff that's kind of out of our wheelhouse. I mean, I don't, I'm not a UFO investigator. I, I mean, I've seen a couple. I think they're real and all that other stuff. And clearly they're real. I mean, even, even the government says they're real, not that the government should be trusted about anything. But, you know, it's a real deal. And I think it deserves some attention and some uh, thought. And it's so neat to have people and a platform that we can invite these people on and share with our listeners who are probably also really interested in weird things. Yeah, for sure. We, we know that we know we got a weird leaning audience, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they they both seem to like us okay, so they must be kind of <laughs> weird people. <laughs> oh, man, I would have been, I got a bad neck right now. I want to stare up at the night sky a lot more. I mean, I look up all the time anyways, but I, I, I literally, literally could talk to him for like 50 hours straight and not run out of questions. All right, Cliff. Well, don't hurt your neck looking up the night sky too much coming up now that you heard that interview. And I'm not going to hurt my hands by high-fiving you so hard for getting such a good guest. <laughs> that, was, that was a score. Yeah, thank you so much, James. All right, folks. Well, there's the beyond for you. So next, I think next week we got more Bigfoot for you. But we'll be bringing on guests like that some more like uh, outside the Bigfoot realm. We appreciate you tuning in. You know what to do. Keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. 
Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 